Point number seven about how then shall we fight for joy. So I'm assuming that at this stage there's a lot of, uh, okay, I see all those texts. I see that Christian hedonism, that is, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him and that the Bible calls us to be satisfied in him and all those reasons you gave. But my heart doesn't seem very engaged. And I grew up in a church where they didn't talk much about that. And so that's why we're doing what we're doing here. These are, these are practical how questions. And I've got 14 or 15 answers, and I'm going to blaze through, I hope, to get through as many as I can. First, realize that authentic joy in God is a gift. Yes, it's commanded, and it's a gift. Remember St. Augustine? He got converted when he was 32. He lived with a mistress for 16 years and was sexually in bondage, as he said. He had one child out of wedlock. When he was saved, he never married again. Never married and became Bishop of Hippo, 4th century. And God gave him a victory over his sexual bondage. And he said, You command continence, O Lord. Command what you will and grant what you command. That's the famous sentence of Augustine. And it's right. It's absolutely biblical. It's a gift. Grant what you command. The fruit of the Spirit is joy. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He's asking God to do it. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So it's a gift to have joy in God. So all of our how-to questions have to keep that in mind because you might think, well, if you ask how do you get it, then there must be a way to get it, and that implies it's not a gift but something you can go out and get. No, there is a strategy to pursue it, but it's the gift, period. This is the mystery of the Christian life, how you pursue something which is a gift. Number two, realize that joy must be fought for relentlessly. You can fall off this fence on either side. You can fall off on the fight side or you can fall off on the gift side. Say, oh, it's a gift, we don't need a fight. Oh, it's a fight, it's not a gift. It's a fight and a gift. Not that we lord it over your faith, Paul says, but we are workers with you for your joy. I love that definition of a pastor. I am a worker with you for your joy. It describes the goal that I should have as a pastor, and it describes the fact that it's very hard work. It's a fight to be fought. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your advancement and joy of faith. I'm going to work. Faith, this is not a verse, this is my words here. Faith has joy at its heart. It is being satisfied with all that God is for us in Jesus. 
Therefore, the good fight of faith is a fight for joy. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And so on. So, fight the fight of faith. And this is all about how to do it. Number three, resolve to attack all known sin in your life. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you don't see God, you can't enjoy God. If you're not pure in heart, the lens through which you see God is going to be clouded. Therefore, if you want to see God and enjoy God, you start taking aim at every known sin in your life. And taking aim is the right word. Look at this. Romans 8, 13. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So, by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body, that means sinful deeds, you'll live. So, you take aim and you kill it. You kill it. John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And the way it kills you is by obscuring your capacity to see and enjoy God. When you're walking with God in cleanness of heart, you see him, you love him, you enjoy him. When you begin to, to pursue sin, your eyes become clouded. Your desires for God shrivel up. So, if you know a specific sin in your life, take aim at it and kill it by the Spirit. This is a gift. We're talking a gift here. You can't kill any sin unless you do it by the Spirit. The Spirit has given us one offensive deadly weapon in Ephesians 6. Remember? He's got belt, truth, helmet, salvation, breastplate of righteousness, shield of faith, shoes of readiness to run with the gospel, and a sword of what? The spirit, which is the? Okay. There is one weapon with which you can kill something. And you're told to kill here. You are to put to death the deeds of the body. You do it by the Spirit. The Spirit has given you the sword, and you do it with the Word. That's another seminar called Future Grace on how you kill sin by the Word of God. But trust, in the short answer is, sin always has power by the promises it makes. Therefore, sin is killed by the power of a superior promise. And you get those from the Bible. Number four, learn the secret of gutsy guilt and how to fight like a justified sinner. Now, this may be the most important of the 14 points. So linger here for a minute with me and think hard. I was just talking with a brother about what's been unsaid so far. We've talked a lot about pursuing joy, and we've said almost nothing about the cross, which is terrible if I leave it there. So here we are about 
how, what, what condition are you in as you pursue joy and the reward? And my answer is, if you're a Christian, you're in a totally secure position. The reward of being with Christ and being forgiven and being justified is secure. Because it's all rooted in something he did for you in the past. So here we are. Do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my case and executes justice for me. He will bring me out to the light and I will see his righteousness. I love that text. Oh, man. It is so realistic. All right. Who, here's the situation. I have sinned. All right. That's you last night or sometime. All right. I have sinned against him. What's the result of that? He's mad. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned. So he's, he's indignant. It's not the whole story, but it's true. He's indignant. Therefore, I have fallen, another way to say it, and I dwell in darkness. There's a cloud. God is angry. He seems distant. I'm contaminated. And I'm in darkness. Now, in that darkness, in my willingness to bear the indignation of the Lord, I'm not making any excuses here. I'm saying I feel horrible. Darkness is over me. God is beclouded. I really sinned. And in that darkness, God is a light for me. I will dwell in darkness. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is a light for me. It's still dark. He's still indignant. And yet, light. This is what I mean by gutsy guilt. You're feeling guilty. You know you should be feeling guilty because you just sinned. But in that, you're not collapsing. You're not saying, I guess I'm going to hell. I guess I'm not saved. I guess it's all over for me. You're getting in the face of your sin and saying, God is light to me. And there may be darkness and he may be indignant, but he's my God. And there is light in this darkness. And so you bear the indignation of the Lord until... He pleads my case. Well, now, wait a minute. He is indignant, right? He's indignant. And you're saying, I'm going to sit here 
and bear this darkness until he pleads my case and executes judgment for me. Well, I thought he was indignant and against you. No, 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 no. He's not against you. You can be angry at somebody and not be against them. Ever gotten angry at your kids? <laughs> Every other day? Maybe. Are you against them? No. You die for them in a minute. Your longings are huge for these kids. God's anger with us in Christ is not punitive anger. It's not anger that is sending us to hell. It's a displeasure at our failure to live the way we should live. But he's coming at us with grace in this anger. And that's underlined in these two phrases. He is going to plead my case. He's not going to be my accuser. He's going to be my defense attorney. And when judgment falls, he's going to be for me and not against me. And therefore, he's going to bring me out to the light and I'm going to see his righteousness. Therefore, don't you rejoice over me, oh, you devil. Oh, the devil's tricky. He trips you up and gets you to sin. And then he whispers, see, you're not a believer. You're not in Christ. You're not going to make it to heaven. Ha, ha, ha. You thought you were so holy. That's the way the devil talks. And then unhumans will talk that way too. If they say you're a Christian, and, and I, mean, I mean, you say you're a Christian, and then they hear you say some sarcastic word at work, they'll come say, hey, Christian, sound just like everybody else. And then you're devastated. But here's... This is all rooted in Christ who's coming. The reason we can talk, the reason Micah could talk this way is because there was going to be someday Jesus Christ who comes into the world, bears the sins of his people and dies in their place so that you could say, we can say what Paul says in Philippians 3.12. He said, I press on to make it my own, namely perfection and heaven and reward in Christ. I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. I love this picture. Ooh, where, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Oh, there you are. And he's all the, all the while, he's got me right here. That's our only hope. All this, all this pursuit of joy is only possible because he has made us his own. He's bought it for us. You don't earn it by the pursuit. You receive it as a gift. The way we pursue it is by faith. It's like this. So I desired something I shouldn't desire. I stumbled. I fell. I sinned against him. He's upset with me and dis. Disapproving of what I do, he's angry. I'm sitting in darkness, I'm going to bear my reproach. But while I sit here, I've got gutsy guilt. 
And I'm saying to the devil and to my own soul and to anybody who says, don't rejoice over me, oh, my enemy. When I fall, I will rise and I'm going to rise because he is going to plead my case and he's going to execute judgment for me. And I'm coming out of this situation very soon and I will see his righteousness. The whole Christian life is learning how to do that. Because you're going to sin, I promise you, before the day is over. What are you going to do with it? Cave? Let the devil get the upper hand by accusing you and making you feel absolutely hopeless because you've sinned again? There is hope only in Jesus because Jesus has paid for those sins and he will advocate for us and not against us. Argument number or strategy number five. Realize that the battle is primarily a fight to see God for who he is. So the fight for joy, the fight for faith, the fight to get out of that experience there is a fight to see. Psalm 34, 8. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's what's happening in the world. We are by nature blind and dead, and the God of this world, the devil, is continually throwing a cloak of confusion and deceit over the world so that the world can't see Christ for who he is. And our whole job as Christians is to throw those off, defy the devil, speak the truth, pray down the Holy Spirit, and see people awakened. It's our job. It's what the word does. The word pierces. The word pierces the darkness, and people then, by grace, are awakened. We, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed from one degree of glory to the next. So, if you want to be changed gradually into Christ likeness, what should you do? Answer: Behold. Glory. That's why I'm so glad at Bethlehem we're preaching our way through John's gospel. Because that's the point of the whole book. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's what every story in John's gospel is about. Revealing the glory of the Son. So my prayer is that Bethlehem will be changed from one degree of glory to the next. Week after week as we behold the glory of Christ. Keep going. Number six. Meditate on the word of God day and night. Now, this is where seeing happens. Mainly. We do see God in the theater of the world. The heavens are telling the glory of God. You walk out today, if the sun's shining, you should see God. The glory of God. Your eyes should remember the illustration I gave in a, in a sermon where when you take a little one year old and you want him to see a toy or a little puppy or something, and you say, Look, there it is. And he doesn't know what point means yet. So all he does is look at your finger. And that's the way the world looks at the sky. The heaven is telling the glory of God, and scientists look up and see 
something to be studied. Well, there is something to be studied, but it's a finger. Go where it's this this is pointing at something. So it is out there, but I want you to meditate on the Word of God mainly. He restores my soul. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. So if you want your soul restored, go to the Word. Precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. If you want joy in your heart, go to the precepts. Your words were found and I ate them. They were the joy to me and became my delight. So if you want joy and delight, eat the Word of God. I have spoken these things to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So if you want your joy to be full... Listen to what Jesus has spoken. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, though it yields its fruit in its season and its leaf doesn't wither. If you want to be the kind of person who has roots down deep so that when the drought comes, your leaves remain green while everybody else's leaves are shriveling up. Why? Because your roots are down delighting in the law of the Lord. Now may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing. In believing what? The word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So if you want to live, eat the word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Do you need faith? Hear the word of Christ. These things were written that believing you might have life in his name. If you want life, believe these things. And so on. You get the message. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So if you want more sanctification, go to the truth. On and on and on. The preciousness and the power of the word of God. Maybe just a story or two. Here's Hudson Taylor, the founder of China Inland Mission and a great saint and missionary from 150 years ago or so. It was not easy for Mr. Taylor in his changeful life to make time for prayer and Bible study. And he knew that it was vital. Well do the white writers. Now, these are, this is, I think his son and daughter are writing this book. This is coming from Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Well do the writers remember traveling with him month after month in northern China by cart and wheelbarrow with the poorest of inns at night, often with only one large room for coolies and travelers alike. They would screen off a corner for their father and the writers. We would screen off a corner for our father and another for ourselves with curtains of some sort. And then after sleep at last brought a measure of quiet, they would hear a match struck and see the flicker of candlelight, which told of Mr. Taylor, however weary, was poring over the little Bible in two volumes, always at hand, from 2 to 4 a.m. was the time he usually gave to prayer, the time he would be most sure of being undisturbed to wait upon God. Now, if an old man traveling by cart in northern China can find two hours to spend pouring over his Bible, you can find time too. Yes, you can. And so can I. We all have exactly the same number of hours in the day. What we do with them is a statement of our priorities.
That's what it is. And I'm encouraging you, if you want to pursue joy, go to the Word. One more story. This one had a huge impact on me about 25 years ago or so because I felt I was doing the same thing he was. The point is this. Mueller writes. Now, remember, Mueller is the founder of the orphanages in in Bristol, England, 150 years ago or so. Just a great godly man of prayer. The point is this. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. Now, that's an amazing statement. Sounds very selfish, doesn't it? And it would be if we didn't have the last hours behind us explaining that you can't be of any use to anybody if you're not happy in the Lord. What are you going to give them? <laughs> Yourself? A duty religion? What are you going to give people? So he knew that he had to fight for his soul first. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. For I might seek to set the truth before the unconverted. I might seek to benefit believers. I might seek to relieve the distressed. I might in other ways seek to behave myself as it becomes a child of God in this world. And yet, not being happy in the Lord and not being nourished and strengthened in my inner man day by day, all this might not be attended in the right spirit. What he said, I didn't, I didn't print it. What he said that was so practically helpful was the way he early on in his Christian life tried to do those devotions early in the morning to get his heart happy in the Lord was by praying first. He would come to his place and he would begin to pray. He'd pray for himself, he'd pray for his wife and children, and he'd pray for the orphans in the ministry. <clears throat> and he said, I found myself so distracted in prayer that I could hardly get anywhere. And so he said, I shifted it. I whispered a prayer to the Lord that took maybe 10 seconds, asking his blessing upon my time, and he would come and teach me. And then I began to read the word and turn the word into prayer. That's what was so practically helpful for me 25 years ago because that's the way I do it to this day. Um, it is very difficult for me to pray for an extended period of time without being guided by the Word of God. My mind tends to wander all kinds of ways. And the Bible keeps me focused and tells me what I should pray. So I'm reading, praying, reading, praying, reading, praying forever, for, for however long you have. So... Go to the Word and pray earnestly and continually for an open heart and eyes and an inclination for God. You go to the Bible dutifully. Here it is. You put it on your table, in your lap, or on your bench. Put your elbows on either side. Start reading. And nothing happens. What should you do? You should do this. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Ask for help. Where is it? 
Here we go. This is the one I start with. Psalm 119.36. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to gain. And then the second thing I pray is, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. You see what those two are? The first one is praying that my disinclination to read the Bible would be taken away. I find it amazing that the psalmist prays that. Because it means he was disinclined to read the Bible. He wouldn't have prayed that otherwise. He said, Lord, my heart is tilting towards money or towards efficiency or towards the Internet or towards whatever. And I don't want to pray. Frankly, I'm really eager to get to work or play or TV or newspaper or coffee or that the psalmist is experiencing that. And against it, he says, incline my heart to your word. That means he can't make it happen by himself. You can't. This is a gift. If, if the means that God uses is the word of God, and you are disinclined to go to the word, what are you going to do? So you cry out, oh God, incline my heart. I pray this virtually every day. I don't assume that because I've been a Christian for 57 years that I will get up desiring to read the Bible tomorrow morning. I don't assume that. I cry out to the Lord, incline my heart to your testimonies. And the second prayer is, open my eyes. To behold wonderful things out of your law. All right, I'm here. And I'm reading and nothing's happening. And I'm not seeing anything exciting or glorious or life-changing. I'm bored. What do you do then? You pray this. You plead it. Because if, if, if I sink into that frame and I stay there, I'm out of the ministry. My life and this church in large measure is at stake in whether this prayer gets answered daily for me. Because if this doesn't get answered, I'm dead. I can no longer be a pastor. There'll be nothing to preach. If I'm not seeing anything wonderful in the Word, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I don't know if I have it in this list. But um, here it is. Oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. So now you've gotten there. You've prayed that you would see wonderful things. You're starting to see something and you pray, oh, God. Now satisfy me with what I'm seeing here. Satisfy me with your loving kindness. Because that's the way you're going to keep from being grumbly, grumbling at the, at the breakfast table, tooting and, and giving the finger to the people in the traffic on the way to work, and being patient with people at the work. And th because you're over the word this morning, God answered this prayer. 
He satisfied you in the morning with his loving kindness. And you're moving through the day with that Macedonian fullness. Grace came down. Abundance of joy came up in the midst of hardship and poverty and overflowed in liberality to everybody around you. Wouldn't that be beautiful if about 4,000 people at Bethlehem lived that way? (laughs) What a beautiful thing it would be. So pray, pray, pray that God would satisfy your soul. Learn to preach to yourself rather than listening to yourself. Here's the psalmist doing it. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. I shall again praise him. He's talking to himself. So here's Martin Lloyd-Jones. This is a good book, by the way. Spiritual Depression. If you, if you labor under depression or just a gloomy frame of mind lots of times, this will help you. He's very realistic. He was a doctor before he became a pastor. You know, he was a medical doctor, quite a good one. And so he knows all the physical components to depression and discouragement, and, and he knows the spiritual components. And so this was written a long time ago. You see that 43 years ago, no, four years ago, but still good. Here's what he says. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you in the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they're talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday. Somebody's talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment, Psalm 42, was this. Instead of allowing his self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? He asks. And his soul had been despairing, depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, you listen for a moment. I'll speak to you. That's so right. That's so good. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, I told you about going away with Noel for our 40th wedding anniversary. And reading Psalm 40, you Psalm 40 on your 40th wedding anniversary. And we got to verse 5. We do this every time we wake up in the morning. We did it again this morning. We alarm went off at 6 o'clock this morning. Noel's heading for Bloomington or somewhere to speak to some ladies. And I'm heading up here. We're lying there before we get out of bed. And I say in my crackly voice, You have multiplied, O oh Lord, my God, your wonderful works and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them that they are more than can be told. And she's saying it with me. Because this talking to yourself works in marriage. Because we we looked back over the last years and we thought, we've experienced enough stresses and trials in our family and elsewhere that our lunch dates on Monday were mainly the rehearsing of problems. We just narrated the problems and we were good at it. We analyzed them t- till they were dead, you know. And, and, and I and she seldom spoke the word of God into those lunches. Like, let's call to mind some promises here. Let's just speak some Bible verses in here. And so when we read this 
you have multiplied, O Lord, your wonderful works and your thoughts toward us. I will proclaim and tell of them. When I read that, I said, let's make that our 19, I mean, our, our 2009 41st wedding year verse, which it is now. So you can come and ask us at any time during the year, how are you doing with verse 5 of Psalm 40? And, and things are better. I mean, I'm doing, we're doing it. Where were you? We're about uh, 24 days into this thing. And, and uh, I just want you to know that this doesn't just work privately, individualistic. Talk, preach to yourself. Preach to the marriage with promises. The wonderful thoughts of God toward us. Number nine. Spend time with God-saturated people who help you see God and fight the fight. I'm giving you, if, if you want a category to put all these answers under, these nine things I've said so far, these are called means of grace. You've heard that phrase? Means of grace. Grace is what makes the difference. It's a gift. Joy is a gift. Faith is a gift. But there are means that God has ordained through which the gift comes. And so here's another one. God-saturated people who help you see God and fight the fight. Jonathan rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. Isn't that a great picture? He strengthened his hand. Oh, what's wrong with you, David? Why, why can't you be strong in the Lord and not need Jonathan? Well, because God has ordained that there be a church and that there be believers. There be small groups and clusters of friendship and people around you who when you start to sink, they're taking your hand and they're strengthening you. They're saying things you need to hear and they're standing by you through thick and thin. God ordained for, for his grace to come through people. It's all over the Bible. And you could say, well, I think God would get more glory if he did it directly instead of through people. Well, you can say that, but that's probably just not true. Because not only does he have to bless you in order for you to be graciously treated through somebody, he's got to bless them as well. And so you get two people giving thanks to God instead of one. And so how do you quantify the glory of God? Take care, brethren, that they're not being... Any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it is called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Isn't that amazing? Encourage one another day after day. Don't go very long without being around people who encourage you. why we put small groups as part of the meat and potatoes of this church. People opt out of the small group life of the church. I'm hoping and praying that they've got a network of people that are doing that pretty regularly for them. Because if you forsake this, you forsake one of the crucial means of grace. It is not easy to be a Christian by yourself. Not easy to be a Christian, period. He who walks with the wise will be wise. Number 10. 
Be patient in the night of God's seeming absence. I waited patient. This is almost the same as gutsy guilt. I just want you to see the waiting piece. We didn't stress that there. This is David talking. One of the first messages I gave, I don't know if it's online or not, it might be, it was an evening message. I was doing some psalms in the first summer here. I came in the summer of 1980, and I remember a few sermons, not all of them, but I remember this one, and it was called, In the Pits with the King. In the Pits with the King. And it was based on Psalm 40. He was King David, and he's in the pits. And there's lots of lessons about being in the pit here. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock and made my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. That's pretty good evangelism. Pit dwelling is a good preparation for evangelism. You agree with that? Isn't that what it says? I waited. Where are you waiting? In your pit, miry clay. How long? How long? There was a man here named Bob. Got to be with the Lord now. Who was, a, who was depressed for eight years. And uh, he was so depressed that he was like a zombie at home with his wife during the day. And some days he would walk around like this. And she would go to the bathroom and he would just come stand by the bathroom door like this. And when she opened the door, he would just go. Like this. this was serious depression. Eight years. And he came out of it. For years he was out of it. He came to prayer meetings over and over again for years. He became a mighty warrior in prayer. And if you ask him, what happened, Bob? He said, I memorized scripture and the word broke in. So he was an unbelievable scripture memorizer. And he carried little cards around. He gave them out to everybody. And Now, the, the, uh, the cheap response to that would be, so why did it take eight years? What's with the word of God? And I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. I don't know how long he waited. I don't know. I'm glad it doesn't tell us. For three weeks, three months, three years... I'm glad it doesn't tell us because it leaves it open-ended for you. All I know is if you're there in the pit, in the miry clay, wait for the Lord. Don't throw in the towel. So many people just say, I'm out of here. I'm just, Christianity's not real. I'm quitting. It's over. This is this, this horrible miry clay clinging around my feet. I'm out of here. But he waited and the Lord Inclined to him, heard his cry. How many times did he cry? A hundred times? A thousand times? He lifted me up out of the pit and then looked at the effect of it. He put a song. He, he was able to sing again. Sing again. And the effect of that song after that waiting was that people trusted in the Lord. Nothing you go through is in vain. Nothing is in vain. Number 11. 
get the rest and exercise and proper diet that your body was designed by God to have. <laughs> this is so nitty-gritty. Why'd you include that? That's not very spiritual. You're right, it's not. It's just unbelievably important. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. In vain you rise up early and retire late to eat the bread of painful labors. He gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Quit getting up so early and staying up so late trying to prove you're God and manage your life and just go to bed like a little baby and let the Lord minister to you in your sleep. Isn't it amazing? I mean, this book, one of the biggest struggles, and it's got a big section in here, is basically how does the body relate to joy? How does the body relate to worship? How does the body relate to all kinds of things? We are embodied souls. And the link between all of our spiritual life and this body is so close. Who can even imagine it? Nobody has ever fathomed the mystery of the connection between the brain and the soul. Those who don't believe in Christianity would say, of course, there is no such thing as a soul, and all you are is brain. And everything we call spiritual affections or worship, they just say it's just chemical things going on in your brain. Now, there's a partial truth in that. Because I'm talking right now, and all kinds of synapses are firing away in my brain. And You could be reductionistic and interpret everything I'm saying, everything I'm feeling, everything I'm thinking, and... Totally chemically and electrically and physically. You could. Hardly anybody's willing to live that way. Fall in love and she says, those are just chemicals. You say you love me, they're just twitches in your brain. This is no different than an earthworm, just more sophisticated. Nobody lives that way. Everybody on the planet who's a human being at some point necessarily interprets our life supra-physically. Otherwise, it loses all of its meaning. And one of the tragic things about our day with uh, naturalistic evolution is that we are trying our best to teach our children that they are nothing but physical. And we should not be surprised then when they behave like dogs in heat. There is no significant moral difference between goats jumping on each other and human beings jumping on each other. No, no, we've taught them there is no big difference. It's just kind of a gradation of sophisticated evolutionary physical phenomena. But if, if you believe that there's God, he created us, he means to do us good, he has a way that we live that is wholesome and pure and good and right and glorify Him and bring deep satisfaction to us, then there comes significance into your life. And you try to think through eating, exercising, and sleeping. I'll just give you a concrete illustration of how I struggle with this. I remember the day in Germany, 1972 about, somewhere between 71 and 74, where it just clobbered me 
patience, it says in Galatians 5, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So it says, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Now, patience means your, your fuse is long, your trigger is not a hair trigger, you're slow to anger, you treat people with grace. If they say something hurtful, you don't immediately strike back. There, there is patience. We all know what patience is. You're in a line, and it's going very slow, and you're not fuming. You're in traffic like I was last night. We're not fuming. Patience, we know what that is. And, and the Bible says it's a gift, a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Well, it, it hit me. Wait a minute. Patience is a fruit of sleep. For me, anyway. If I miss a night of sleep, or if I get, say, two five-hour nights in a row, I'm irritable. My fuse is way shorter. My trigger is a hair trigger. Don't get too close to me with anything negative, because you might pay. That's what the lack of sleep does to me. So how can you call it a fruit of the Spirit when it's a fruit of sleep? That's the question that you ask over and over again. You can do the same thing with food. If you get hungry, you get crabby, right? I've done fasting, serious fasting, back when I was younger, and I could do more serious fasting without dying. I tell you, I saw some stuff in my heart I didn't want to see. You go two, three days without food, whew, man, you can get mad in a hurry. So there's food. So it's sleep and it's food. And I know for a fact that if I stop running, I run three mornings a week, beat my body trying to, you know, stay fit and be healthy. I know I get more discouraged and more depressed when I don't do that. Stuff is produced in my brain, these little endorphins or whatever they're called, you know? And they function like antidepressants made by God. That's true. It's designed that way. So now you've got exercise, you've got sleep, you've got food, all feeding these so-called spiritual realities of patience. What's the deal? And my, my answer to that is God made us this way. And one of the ways, not the only way, one of the ways that the Holy Spirit produces his fruit is by making you humble enough to go to bed and stop trying to be God. Go to bed like a little child. I mean, isn't it humiliating? I just regard God as, oh my, why God would you ordain for somebody with an ambition and a love of work like mine to have to be unconscious a third of his life. <laughs> I find sleep so incredibly boring. I hate sleep. I want to read. I want to work. I want to write. I want to do stuff. Why would God do that? Very simple. Unless you turn and become like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you're humble enough to let God be God and run the world, and you just totally become helpless and unconscious for seven, eight hours a day, you're going to die. He set it up that way. 
So I think humility or the work of the Holy Spirit inclines us to eat right, inclines us to exercise right, inclines us to rest right, in order that he might bear fruits through our body. And if you know that eating too much caffeine makes you get a headache when you don't have it, you're probably hooked and you should somehow break it. And on and on and on. Jonathan Edwards, I won't read this, but Elijah and Jonathan Edwards worked hard to find those foods and exercises that would maximize their, their joy in God. Okay, we're out of time. Let me just throw these others on the overhead. Make a proper use of God's revelation in nature. I think I've said enough about that along the way. Great quote from Spurgeon. I love, but I won't read. Read great books about God and biographies of great saints. This is simply applying to those who are dead what we said about hanging out with godly people in life. Okay? There are people in this room you should hang out with who are godly, who will strengthen you and sharpen you. And there are a few hundred dead people that you should get to know and, and uh, read their books because they will be used by God to strengthen your faith and increase your joy. Do hard and loving things for the sake of others because Isaiah 58 says that when you pour yourself out for others, you become like a watered garden. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And finally... Get a global vision for the cause of Christ and pour yourself into to the unreached. This is simply saying that uh, not everybody should, should be a missionary, but God is after the world. He wants to redeem people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And until we get our souls around the world, our, our souls are probably going to stay smaller than they should. If you want the capacity to feel as much joy as you can feel, then enlarge your heart to include the whole world and pray down God's blessing on the entire world. So, sum it all up. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. And the reason we as sinners can be satisfied in Him is because Christ died in our place. He took all of our sins. He provided the righteousness we need. He took hold of us so that all of our questings after joy are questings from a standpoint of forgiveness and a standpoint of justification. We're already vindicated in the courtroom of God. We're not questing out of a sense of insecurity. We're resting in Him. He bought us by His blood and righteousness And now in that confidence, that gutsiness, we fall sometimes, we walk sometimes, and we're pursuing maximum joy, fullness of joy forever. You have shown me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's pray. Gracious Father, how kind you are to help us for these five hours together. Father, I long so much now to grow in the intensity of my affections for you and for my brothers and sisters here and for the lost, those who are without Christ and need to have their eyes opened. Oh God, would you grant that eye-opening work for us all, that we might see and savor 
and be satisfied with Jesus Christ and pour ourselves out in love for the world. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.